as the church, we are Christ's body. We are united to Christ by faith. We therefore become the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ. In all the service that we do in the world, in the proclamation of the gospel, we become the voice of Christ. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6, and when you find your place there, I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're moving into a a new section of Mark's Gospel, beginning in verse 7. I want to read down through just verse 13. We're going to look at a smaller section of Scripture this morning. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Now hear God's Word. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the holy word of God. Please be seated and let us ask the Lord's help as we look at this text together. Our Lord God, we come before your sacred scripture this morning, and Lord, we desire your help. We are in need of the help of the Holy Spirit as we look at this text. Lord, we pray that we would understand, Lord, not only what it meant to the original readers, but also by your blessed Holy Spirit, what it means to us today in the contemporary church. Give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear all that your Spirit would teach us. We pray these things. In the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The next section of Mark's gospel really can't be overstated because in this new section we see before our eyes the power of Christ's kingdom on display. Already Jesus is in the shadow of the cross. His earthly ministry lasted three short years And during that time, the world had never seen anything like it had seen during the days of Jesus' ministry. The world had not been blessed more than it had been blessed during the days of Jesus' ministry. Even the nation of Israel had not been blessed, um, even like it had been blessed in the Old Testament at its highest, most blessed times, like it was blessed during the days of Jesus. But He would be crucified Soon he would be gone. He would be rejected by his own people, the nation of Israel. And yet amazingly, after Jesus' departure, even more blessings would come. Jesus himself 
would make quite an amazing statement in the Gospel of John. In chapter 14, Jesus would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Quite an amazing statement to think, according to the promise of Jesus, that his followers would do greater works than him. How could Jesus be outdone by his followers in his works? Well, the answer lies in the fact that the Holy Spirit would be sent by Jesus. The Holy Spirit would regenerate his people. The Holy Spirit would indwell his people. And as disciples were multiplied throughout the world, Jesus Christ would work through his people. As the church, we are Christ's body. We are united to Christ by faith. We therefore become the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ. In all the service that we do in the world, in the proclamation of the gospel, we become the voice of Christ. We have been sent to serve just as Jesus sent the twelve to serve in the passage that I just read. We have been built on the foundation of the apostles who were the first sent ones of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, only Jesus has preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, only Jesus has healed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, only Jesus has cast out demons. But all of that changes in this next section where Jesus assembles the twelve together and he sends them out to do exactly what he himself has been doing. It is likely that this event occurs sometime shortly before Jesus preached the most famous sermon that was ever preached, that is the Sermon on the Mount, probably the summer of A.D. 28. We saw last week that Jesus was in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. He um, used that synagogue as a preaching lab for his disciples to demonstrate to them the type of preaching that they should engage themselves in and also to set before them an example of what it would be like to be rejected for the message that they preached. Jesus was the prophet of all prophets. He came into his own synagogue. His own people rejected him. As Jesus said back in verse For a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Jesus would now send the twelve among the household of Israel. And uh, as they moved along the towns and the villages uh, throughout Galilee, they too would be rejected like Jesus. They would share in his preaching, the apostles would, and they would share in his rejection. It is likely that Jesus is going to stay back either in Nazareth or in Capernaum as he sends the apostles on. We read in verse 6 that he marveled because of their unbelief in Nazareth, and he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus went on a preaching tour himself, a short-term trip of preaching, and now he has collected the apostles together to send them out. They are going to go out alone. He is metaphorically, we could say, handing over the Old Testament scroll to the apostles, passing on the baton of leadership to them and preaching to them. You remember when we talked about the 12 apostles, we spoke about the significance of the number 12. In Israel, the 12 patriarchs represented uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Jesus is selecting 12 apostles, 12 apostles who will represent the true Israel of God. 
12 apostles chosen by God to replace the apostate leadership of ethnic Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus is the cornerstone. We just read in Mark 6, 1 through 6, that Jesus was the cornerstone that was rejected. But that cornerstone would be the cornerstone from around which the foundation of the church, the 12 apostles, would then see the kingdom of God be built throughout all the world. That is exactly what is taking place in our passage this morning. Jesus shook the dust of Nazareth off his feet, and now he will send the apostles out. They too will be rejected, but the gospel message will prevail and God's kingdom will expand. We come to the end of Mark chapter 6 and we see that they reported to Jesus all that they did. The implication there is that they were mightily successful in preaching the gospel. There were many souls that were saved. It did come with some rejection, but with authority they preached, with authority they cast out demons, with authority they healed the sick. Life would come by death. Reception would only come by rejection. The apostles would share in the same sort of persecution that the prophets of the Old Testament shared in same sort of rejection that Jesus would have. They would share in preaching. They would share in rejection. And that is one of the central points that Mark wants us to see. I've mentioned to you many times that Mark uses uh, what we call a theological sandwich. And that's what he does in this passage. He uses the martyrdom of John the Baptist If you look with me in verses 14 through 29, we have recorded here the death of John the Baptist by the hands of King Herod. That is the central passage of chapter 6. The fact that John the Baptist, the final prophet of the Old Testament, would be killed. He would be murdered. Before that, we have the passage we're looking at this morning, verses 7 through 13. That's the first piece of bread. And then at the end of this, verse 30, the other piece of bread, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So you have two pieces of bread. This is a theological sandwich. The first piece of bread, verses 7 through 13, is the sending of the apostles. The last piece of bread, verse 30, is the return of the apostles. And what do we have in the middle? We have the meat. The theological meat that Mark wants you to digest is the fact that John the Baptist would be rejected and murdered. And what is the point? The point is that in the sending of the apostles, in the sending of God's disciples to preach the gospel, to proclaim the power of the kingdom that has come, God's people in all quarters of the world will and should expect to be rejected. Maybe not to the point of death like John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was killed. The prophet of prophets, Jesus, was killed. And every single one of the apostles, with the exception of one, were martyred for their faith. The message of John is that the cost of discipleship is great. And yet, our Lord calls all of His disciples to go into the world. He calls them to Himself to then send them into the world. 
Mark will wait to tell of the execution of John only after he speaks about the sending of the twelve so that his original readers and us included will consider what John's death means for discipleship. And so there are many practical lessons that we can learn from these verses. And Jesus' sending of the twelve here in verses 7 through 13 and then we'll look at verse 30 as well we really find some basic principles for the contemporary church regarding ministry and the advancement of Christ's kingdom into the world. Jesus, as I said, is going to send these 12 out. He's not going with them. He's sending them out as a preview of what is to come because Jesus would not always be on this earth. Jesus would be crucified. Jesus would resurrect. Jesus would ascend. And then he would send his Holy Spirit. But it is the church who are the hands and the feet and the voice of Christ that would go out into the highways and byways of this world, proclaim the gospel, and be the vehicle by which we would call sinners into the kingdom of God. And so while many of the instructions that Jesus gives here in verses 7 through 13 to the apostles were temporary, there nevertheless are some basic instructions that we can draw from these verses that apply to the contemporary church today. The church's ministry, the church's ministry that effectively advances the growth of Christ's kingdom in the world involves the adoption of six basic principles that are outlined in this passage this morning. And I, I want to look at those with you this morning. First of all, we see a providential commissioning in verse 7. Second, a prepared commitment in verses 8 and 9. Third, a purpose contentment in verse 10. Fourth, a proclaimed condemnation, verses 11 and 12. Fifth, a personal compassion, verse 13. And sixth, a practical culpability, verse 30. My goal is to go through these somewhat fast, but we will spend a good bit of time on the first basic principle because it is so fundamental. So notice with me, first of all, the first principle that we can learn for the contemporary church today and being effective in advancing God's kingdom in the world is what I want to call a providential commissioning. A providential commissioning. Verse 7. The beginning of verse 7 says, And he called the twelve. He called the twelve. This is a providential commissioning. Jesus has just preached on a preaching circuit in verse 6. As it says, he went about among the villages teaching. Now, he is calling the twelve to himself. This is a providential commissioning. We could call it a sovereign summons. A divine commissioning. This is a formal assembling of the twelve together. The apostles have been training under Jesus, and now he is going to send them out. It is their turn to be released to use their preaching wings. And as verse 7 says, he began to send them out two by two. He has already sovereignly regenerated them. You remember the example, maybe the greatest example of that sudden salvation was the conversion of Matthew, who when Jesus called him, he was at his tax booth and he immediately got up and went and followed Jesus. And that was true about all of the apostles. They had been sovereignly regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but they had been sovereignly recruited for full-time ministry. This is seen in the example of Peter 
and Andrew and James and John, they were fishermen and they hear Jesus call them. They drop their nets. They leave their business. That was their vocation. And they went into full-time ministry to follow Jesus, to be discipled by Him and to preach. They had been sovereignly regenerated, sovereignly recruited. We already noted the fact that they sovereignly represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, because in Luke chapter 6, we read that after Jesus continued all night in prayer, He consciously and carefully selected among His many disciples only 12 that would then represent the true Israel of God, the foundation of the true Israel of God. Well, they've been sovereignly regenerated, sovereignly recruited. They sovereignly represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and now He is going to sovereignly release them into the villages of Galilee, into the towns, to the synagogues, two by two, to proclaim the gospel. They've been sovereignly regenerated, sovereignly recruited, sovereignly representing the 12 tribes, sovereignly released, and after Jesus' resurrection, they will be sovereignly required to preach not only in Jerusalem, but also Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, as Acts 1.8 says. All of this, of course, is in accordance with Christ's original purpose for them, but there was a process in getting there. If you go back to Mark chapter 3, we read in verse 13 that Jesus went up on a mountain, and we, the parallel passage is Luke chapter 6, where He prayed all night. And he called those whom he desired, and they came to them. And verse 14 says, He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, watch this, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Verse 15, and to have authority to cast out demons. So that was always his purpose. They had not been preachers until this point. They had only heard Jesus preach in all of the villages and in Nazareth. Uh, They had seen Jesus cast out demons. They hadn't cast out demons yet. They had seen Jesus perform healings. They hadn't performed healings yet, but now they would. In fact, you have that language there back in Mark 6, verse 7, that he called them, proskaletai is the Greek word there, and he sent them, or he would send them, apostoletain, which defines the apostolic commission. They were sovereignly summoned, to salvation, and now they are being sovereignly sent. And let me just say, that is true of all true disciples. Central to discipleship is being sovereignly called by God and then sovereignly sent. That is what Jesus said even in Matthew chapter 28. That was the last instructions that Jesus gave to the church, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Central to what Jesus was doing in sending them out two by two involved preaching. We know that because of what we read in verse 12, if you skip down there. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And even verse 11, if in any place they will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then you will leave. The idea is that they were to be mouthpieces for Jesus Christ. They were providentially commissioned to preach the gospel. In Luke's account, Luke is more explicit about this. In Luke's account of this same event, Luke 9.2 says that he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
The Greek word for proclaimed is keruso. It is the job of a herald to call sinners to repentance, to place faith in Christ, to be reconciled to God. As the foundation of the church, this began with the apostles proclaiming the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Matthew's account of this, you can even flip back there if you want to, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew identifies this, verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather, notice this, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is how the mission of Jesus began. It began in Jerusalem. It began with ethnic Jews, but it wasn't to end there. Because later, Jesus would say this, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not of the ethnic Israel fold. I must also bring them in, they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. There is only one people of God. It is the elect people of God who are part of the true Israel of God, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation, along with the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is sending the twelve to go out among the Jewish cities to proclaim that the King has come, to proclaim that the Messiah has come, that they need to repent of their sins to be reconciled to God, central to the providential commissioning and being sent out two by two was the proclamation of the gospel. The declaration of repentance. This is exactly what John the Baptist did, right? In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And it's what Jesus did. Mark 1, 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus is sending them out two by two. I think it is very important to point out he is not sending all of the disciples out at this point. He is only sending the twelve. And the reason for that is because in God's providence, he has called and he has sanctified certain men to be preachers. And that principle carries through into the New Testament church. There is no more important ministry of the New Testament church than the preaching of the Word of God. And God has called certain men into the office of ministry. God has called certain men to proclaim the Word of God. It is their duty to do that. They are to give their lives to that. That is central to the church. And any church that does not emphasize the preaching of the Word of God is being disobedient to the providential commissioning that God has given His disciples. You may not be called to preach the Word of God. Not everyone is. But it is preachers, and it is preaching in particular, in which God has sanctified to be the means by which His gospel is disseminated into the world. We read about this, that how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's Paul's words in Romans chapter 10. And that is why we've been emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the prophet of prophets. 
In chapter 1 and verse 38, when the disciples are trying to get Jesus to perform more miracles, Jesus says, No, let us go to the other towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And it says in verse 39, He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So the same thing that the Father commissioned the Son to do, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God and urge people to repent is the same thing that Jesus is commissioning the twelve to do as He sends them out two by two and it's the same thing that He's commissioned the church to do today. Central ministry of a biblical church is preaching. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In fact, the word for send there in verse 7 is apostello which is the noun form for apostle or apostolos. The twelve possessed unique authority. They had unique authority to cast demons out and to perform miracles. There are no apostles today, but there are preachers. There are those pastor teachers who are to equip the saints for the work of service, Ephesians 4 says, because that is how the body of Christ moves into the world and ushers people into the kingdom of God. The church is equipped through the proclamation of the Word of God, instruction in the Word of God, so the church serves. First, the church serves one another, and then by word and witness, the world at large. These are the basic principles that are being brought out of this text when verse 7 says, He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He began to do this. This was not the beginning of the end. This was the end of the beginning. Because the sending continues with us. God's kingdom grows through kingdom service of its citizens. We've been providentially commissioned to proclaim the gospel. And we see that this is the duty of all disciples to disseminate the message because it says He sent them out two by two. Literally in the Greek, that is duo, duo. The twelve apparently were broken up into a series of dynamic duos for ministry. A reminder to us that the church is about more than one person. It's about more than one man. Everyone in the church is called to serve. Why are they sent out in twos? Probably to reveal to us the importance of companionship. What more needful thing and ministry than the needful thing of encouragement, especially when the message is rejected. And this was something that the early church did. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were sent out two by two. Mark and Barnabas were sent out in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Silas were sent out in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 19, Timothy and Erastus were sent by Paul into Macedonia. So you have this concept of companionship and teamwork, probably also because of the principle of it being complementary. The strengths of one would become the strengths of both. The weakness of one would be overcome by the strength of another because different skills and different gifts complement one another for greater effectiveness in ministry. So that's another reason Jesus sent them out two by two. For companionships, companionship, because it was complementary. Number three, for confirmation. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a charge will be established. What more needful thing to confirm than the truth of the gospel? One or two preachers is better than one preacher. Two apostles is better than one. 
Again, the concept of teamwork. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So he sent them out two by two for companionship, for complementary purposes, for confirmation of the message that was being preached, for coverage. More ground would be covered if they split up. And so this is the beginning of God's expansive rule in the world. The establishment of His powerful kingdom, the growth of His kingdom. The twelve were extensions of Christ. And today, as Christians, we are members of the body of Christ, called to proclaim the gospel and declare the authority of Christ. Now notice the end of verse 7, because here we see the authority and the power of the kingdom on display. He sent them out two by two. We know from Luke that they proclaimed the gospel. But he also, as the end of verse 7 says, gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now back in chapter 3 and verse 15, we saw that that was the central reason he selected 12, was to give them authority to cast out demons. But it's not until now that they actually receive that authority. And let me just say that is not insignificant. Because the casting out of demons is a clue that God's kingdom has broken into the world with the subduing of demonic powers. This authority that was given to Jesus to cast demons out, we saw Him cast out 6,000 demons, and one person alone is authority that is now given to the twelve. We read in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that the signs of a true apostle were performed among the church with signs and wonders and mighty works. There are no longer apostles today because the canon of Scripture is complete. There is no need for signs and mighty works, but they were necessary during the days of Jesus and the apostles as authenticating signs and to validate the message of the gospel that was preached. Jesus put it this way in John 5.36, For the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So all of the casting out of demons, the power of Christ on display, was meant to show that God, through the Messiah, was invading the world. He was casting the ruler of this world, Satan, out and His kingdom was being established. And really, this is nothing new. God worked this way even in the Old Testament. You remember during the days of Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses had some doubts about being God's chosen representative to go to Egypt to lead Israel out of bondage. Moses said to God that even if he were to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let God's people go, that the Israelites would be the problem because they would not believe. So what does God do? God gave Moses in His mercy and grace a litany of miraculous signs to validate the truthfulness of the message Moses was giving. And so, his staff became a serpent when it was cast to the ground. When he put his hand in his robe and he pulled it back out, it was leprous. The Nile turned to blood. Why? Why did God give these signs? Exodus 4 5 says, so that, these are the words of God, the Israelites may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to Moses so that Moses would go and accomplish this task. 
Well, what greater signs are coming in the days of Jesus? Never before in the history of the world. This was not one, some one-time event. For three years, Jesus put his power on display. He showed his authority as king over natural disasters, physical diseases, inevitable death, supernatural demons. And now that authority is being passed to the apostles to indicate the fact that Christ's kingdom is being established. Satan is being dethroned. Jesus will rule and reign. And I want to tell you, beloved, that there is nothing that can stop the rule and the reign of Jesus. Uh, There is no evil government that can stop King Jesus. There is no false religion that can stop Jesus. Uh, There is no apostasy within the church that can stop King Jesus. His power has invaded this world. He has dethroned Satan. He is, for all reasons that we can give from Scripture, proven to have victory over sin and Satan and death. There has never been, like there was during the days of Jesus, demon possession prevalent like there were in Jesus' day. There are dark corners of this world, but the light of the gospel has expelled much darkness. And this providential commissioning of the church shows us that King Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's ruling and He's reigning. Today, we do not cast demons out. Let me be clear about that. There are no apostles, and there is no casting out of demons. But we do put the authority of King Jesus on display by our words. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He said, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul never commands in the New Testament elders to cast demons out. Paul never commands deacons to cast demons out. But he doesn't say that one of the qualifications of an elder is this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. The power of the church today in fulfilling our providential commissioning comes through the proclamation of the word of God. We refute and rebuke false ideologies, false theologies through the preaching of the word of God. Of God. In the same vein, Paul told deacons in 1 Timothy 3 9 that they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We must know the Word of God inside and out. This is our power over Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, Paul says, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say, as servants of Christ, we cast out demons. No, Paul says, as servants of Christ, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the authority of the church. That reveals the authority of King Jesus, because when the gospel is proclaimed, King Jesus rescues souls from the clutches of Satan. 
just as God rescued Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. And I want to tell you this morning that if you are a Christian, you have been providentially commissioned to proclaim this message of the gospel. It matters not if you are a pastor or an elder or a deacon. It matters not what your particular gifting may be. If you are part of the body of Christ, you have been built upon the foundation of the apostles who were sent by Christ. And you and I, all of us, have been sent out into the highways and the byways of this world to proclaim the gospel. We are called to serve the church by proclaiming the gospel, by being a living sacrifice and advancing His kingdom into the world. And so the question this morning is, where will you serve? The question this morning is, what will you do? The question this morning is, how much of your time and your talents and your treasures are you willing to give to fulfill your providential commissioning, which in basic form is the same as the apostle? The same authority that Christ used to send the apostles is the same authority that He uses this morning to send us into the world. We have been sovereignly summoned unto salvation, and therefore we have been sovereignly summoned to serve. We have been sovereignly called to come to Jesus, and He has then sent us out into the world. And so just like the original twelve, we are under a mandate by Christ the King. We have been providentially commissioned. And it is a matter of obedience or disobedience. It is a matter of proclaiming the gospel or keeping our mouths shut. There's only two options. And we will be held accountable before God to the degree that we are faithful as a church and as the people of God in proclaiming the gospel in this particular community. We are not in Galilee but we are in St. John's County, and the same providential commission hangs over our heads. And we must answer the question, what will we do? Will we be obedient to the Lord? Well, I told you we would spend most of our time on that first principle, but let's go to another principle, because there are six of them. We are sent to serve. We are sent to advance the kingdom of Christ in the world. The first principle as a providential commissioning. Secondly, we need to have a prepared commitment. A prepared commitment. Notice with me verses 8 and 9. It says that He charged them, that is the twelve, to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now these are somewhat distorted verses in many quarters of Christendom, misinterpreted, I should say. What I want to say at the outset is that these are temporary stipulations, and I can prove that to you because if you turn with me to Luke chapter 22, when we fast forward to the upper room, Jesus changes, really goes against what he says here in Mark chapter 6, because in Mark chapter 6, He's giving temporary stipulations. In Luke chapter 22, they're in the upper room. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. He's referring back to Mark chapter 6. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the Scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered among the transgressors, and what was written about me has its fulfillment. 
So in the upper room, Jesus says, what I told you back in Mark 6 is going to be a little bit different from now on. Now we need to keep that in mind as we look at Mark chapter 6 because these are temporary stipulations. And yet even in these temporary stipulations, there are some principles for us to draw from the text. And I want to help you with that. There is no contradiction in what Jesus says. Remember, he's trying to train the disciples. They have a problem with faith, don't they? Um, They question Jesus. For example, they have debated with him. In chapter 1, we want you to perform miracles instead of preach. Jesus says, no, I've been called to preach. Not only did they debate with him, but they disturbed his sleep. Remember that in the boat in the storm? They questioned Jesus, do you want us to perish? Of course he didn't want him to perish. They debate him, they doubt him, they disturb him in his sleep. But in spite of their raw spirituality, Jesus is going to use them. And he's training them. So you can think of it this way. These stipulations in verses 8 and 9 are like training wheels to help them get where they need to be. He wants them to go out as they are sent out with virtually nothing, bare provisions for this particular reason, so that they will learn to depend upon God for their every need. And I want to tell you this morning, there will be times in your life in which God will take certain things away from you. He may give them back, but He will take them away temporarily in order to teach you to depend upon Him with faith. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here with the twelve. Now, I'm also convinced, before we look at them, these verses, that there is an echo here of Exodus chapter 12. We read this passage for a public reading of Scripture. In the night of the Passover, they were to eat with their belt fastened. We read in Exodus 12, sandals on their feet, staff in their hand. They shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They were to be dressed, the Old Testament Israelites were, in a way that they could move quickly and travel lightly. And that's the same sort of language that is being used here in verses 8 and 9. They're to go with a staff in their hand. They're to wear sandals. They are to be dressed in such a way that they are traveling lightly with little baggage because they need to be prepared. And their preparedness was one that needed to be prepared to be committed to depend upon God even though they had bare provisions. Sandals, staff. This is a matter of urgency for them to go. Remember, it was a matter of urgency when God delivered the Israelites on the night of the Passover. That was an exodus. God was leading them out, leading them into a new page of history for Israel, deliverance, reception into the promised land. I think all of that imagery is in Jesus' mind here. Mark 6 presents to us a new exodus, a new era in redemptive history. This is language of urgency. This is language of preparedness. This is language of commitment and dependence upon God. Because as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and we are called to go where God calls us to go even with the barest of provisions depending upon the Lord even if our life is at risk, even if we are rejected, even if we feel that our spiritual gifting is minimal, even if we feel our physical resources aren't what they should be, we are called to go. We have been delivered in a new exodus. Jesus is 
the Passover lamb fulfilled from the Old Testament. And he has sent us out to go. God's true Israel is being delivered in the days of Jesus from their apostate leadership, their false gospel of work, salvation, and legalism. And Jesus is calling the apostles to be prepared to move quickly, to travel lightly, to be focused on one thing, and that is the preaching of the gospel. Oh, how I wish churches and evangelicalism today would lose their baggage, their superficial baggage. This program, that program, this thing and that thing, this emphasis and that emphasis, emphasizing everything but the preaching of the Word of God. And here is what happens. They are weighed down by the cares of this world. They are weighed down by the riches of this world. And their mouth is muted when they actually do preach the gospel because no one wants to listen to a church that looks like the world. They have the money of the world, the things of the world. They act like the world. They talk like the world. Jesus says here to the apostles, you are to trust me for everything. You are to go with only one thing, and that is the message of the gospel. You are to depend upon me that as you proclaim the gospel, I will be faithful to draw my sheep to myself, that the true Israel of God will be delivered. There will be a new exodus, and I will save my people from their sins. This is not about us. It is about what God has chosen to do through His people. And we are to be prepared to do one thing, that is preach the gospel and to depend upon the Lord. So with that in mind, notice verse 8, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Now we know from Psalm 23 that a staff was used by a shepherd to walk and a staff was used by a shepherd to fend off wolves. And so our dependence upon God, the dependence of the apostles upon God, was not to be accompanied with stupidity. They were to take a staff, what they needed to assist them, what they needed to protect them, but they weren't to go overboard. The idea here is you can take a staff, uh, but don't take more than one staff. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 9 just for a moment, because in verse 3 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus says here, you are to take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Now that seems contradictory, because here in Luke 9, 3, he says, take no staff, and in Mark 6, he says, you can take one staff. Well, if you turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 10, we get a little bit of clarification on this in Matthew's account. In Matthew chapter 10, in the context, Jesus says in verse 9, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey. Now notice this language. Or two tunics, or two pairs of sandals, or two staffs, for the laborer deserves his food. So I think Matthew provides some clarity here. The apostles were not to take extra stuff. You know what it's like when you pack on a trip. You can go overboard sometimes, right? Well, I might lose my toothbrush. I'll pack two. You know, I, I might lose my razor. I'll pack two. Jesus is saying the point here is to depend upon God. Take nothing extra. No additional staff. No extra sandals. Trust me. Now turn back to Mark chapter 6 and uh, what he says there in verse again. He says also, no bread, no bag, no money 
in their belts. The point is the barest of provisions. Why? Because number one, they were to be dependent upon God, and number two, they were to be dependent upon others. That's why they didn't need to bring money. They were to be supported in the ministry. They were to seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, and all these things would be given to them. I think the bag that is mentioned here in verse 8 is a reference to a beggar's bag. This was common in Jewish contexts as well as Greco-Roman contexts. You would have false preachers, false teachers, false prophets who would go around with what they called a beggar's bag begging for money. Jesus is saying here that preachers are not to be beggars. Preachers are to depend upon God to meet their needs. The church today could learn a lesson from this because so many churches, and I'm talking specifically and primarily about prosperity preachers, all they talk about is money. All they talk about is your obligation to give money and how God will bless that. Jesus tells the apostles here, don't even take a money bag. Don't even think about begging for money. Now, Jesus said that because he wanted the apostles to be dependent upon others for support in the ministry. And this principle comes through throughout the New Testament. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, about the importance of, of supporting ministry. Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? He also says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 9, 7. Do I say these things on human authority? Does the, not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. That Old Testament verse was written for the sake of full-time ministers so that they would be fed just like an ox who treads the grain. The plowman should plow in hope. The thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than be put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service got their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus is not denying that by saying don't take a money bag. He's reinforcing the fact that you're not going to take a money bag because you can depend upon God's people for your needs to be met. Many other passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And likewise the laborer deserves his wages. By the way, when Matthew gives his account of the same instance in Mark 6, he quotes that Old Testament verse, the laborer deserves his wages. That's why you don't take a money bag. Here in 1 Timothy 5, this is in reference to pastor teachers, those ordained, set apart for gospel ministry. So Jesus' simple point is that of dependence. Part of depending upon the Lord is depending on the Lord's people. So he says, take no money bag with you. 
And then verse 9, he says, But to wear, notice your Bibles, sandals and put on two tunics. They were to wear sandals on their feet, not bring an extra pair. They were to wear the one tunic they had, not bring an extra. These were the stipulations laid down. Now again, this is not some legalistic list for preachers and pastors of our own day to follow. Jesus already changed these stipulations in Luke 22 in the upper room, as I said. And yet I do think there are some principles here regarding the minister and depending upon the church of God, regarding the people of God being generous in their giving, being cheerful in their giving, being regular in their giving. There are some today that don't hold to an Old Testament tithe. I personally hold to an Old Testament tithe because I think that if the New Testament speaks about oxen who are treading the grain and eating that using Old Testament verses, then then I think the Old Testament tithe is a very reasonable place to start for the people of God. But even if you don't believe in a tithe, the, the New Testament is very clear that regular, consistent giving is very, very important. I have a personal opinion on the matter that the preacher of the Word of God must not make this the emphasis of his preaching or his teaching. But I can point you back to Matthew chapter 10. And this may be helpful for you. Because in speaking about money and the church, it can be an awkward topic to speak about. But I would put it to you in these words. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you, talking about a prophet or a preacher, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. In the context, receiving a prophet means supporting him, having him come into your home, being generous to him. Verse 42, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is saying that generosity given to prophets and preachers will have as its return generosity by God, by those who give. There have been many times throughout the ministry that we have had needs and we have told no one except the Lord and He has met those needs. Those are sweet moments and I would rather keep it that way. But the bottom line is that the ministry of the Word in a church, cannot exist apart from financial giving. And so, that is a principle, I think, to take from this passage as Jesus sends the twelve out. There's another little principle here that I want to point out, and it has more to do with your spiritual gifting. Perhaps you don't feel that you have the spiritual resources to do what you want to do. Maybe you think that the cupboard of spiritual resources in your soul is bare. Let me just encourage you, the disciples were ill-prepared to be sent by Jesus. They doubted Jesus. They were not experienced preachers. Most of them were fishermen, and God still used them. God can use you. God will use you. The apostles were raw at this point, but you know, sometimes God uses ill-prepared people, those humbled, those with minimal provisions because that displays maximum faith. On our part, we're going to trust God to just be obedient with what we have, with who we are, and going 
and serving the church, serving the interests of the kingdom of God. And you know, we may be surprised. When we're prepared with just a staff in our hands, sandals on our feet, little provisions, we may be surprised at how the Lord uses us. And I think the next few verses clue us in on how we can be used. We move to the third principle, and I want to call this a purposed contentment. Verse 10, we've seen a providential commissioning, a prepared commitment. Verse 10, a purposed contentment. Notice your Bibles. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now again, this is continuing his discussion in verses 8 and 9 about the apostles taking little with them, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, just the sandals on their feet, just the tunic on their back. And now he says to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Jesus is saying here, you don't need two tunics because two tunics means that you wear one and you use the other one in the cold desert night as a blanket. You are to stay in the homes of others. And and such accommodations will therefore allow you to focus on your job of proclaiming the gospel. But notice, he says, you are to be content with these providential accommodations. Because what he's saying is that once an invitation in a certain house is received, you're to stay there until you leave that place or you leave that town. So in return for hospitality, these dynamic duos who go out two by two, these apostles, were not supposed to move from house to house for better arrangements offered. You can imagine what that would be like, right? You go into a town, someone welcomes you in, the food's okay, but then a four-star hotel offers more. Jesus is saying, be very, very careful. You have the right to be supported in the ministry. You have the right as a laborer, to be supported. But your motivation should not be what you get, it should be what you give. And what you give are the riches of the gospel. That needs to be the focus. You need to have a purposed contentment in what God provides. I also want to say this. I think that Jesus was tamping down on the ministry being marked by the social rather than the spiritual. Sometimes that can happen in churches where the focus becomes the social instead of the spiritual. Jesus didn't want the apostles going from house to house as if this was a vacation. This wasn't a vacation. It was a business trip. And the church is the family of God, and we are to enjoy being around one another. We are to love being around one another, and there is a social element to that. But the church is also a business. We are in the business of caring for souls, reproving and rebuking and correcting and admonishing and chastening. And so there are spiritual duties that are take place. Jesus is saying, don't get so comfortable in a town that you just go from house to house to house. Don't reduce your church relationships to purely spiritual because this will remove the ability to encourage and reprove and rebuke and sharpen. There are too many churches today that function like country clubs instead of ministries. And so Jesus is giving some of these principles even for our own day. Now I want to return back to what we spoke about earlier. 
about the money bag. There were false teachers present, not only in Jesus' day, but then in the first century church, as Paul wrote to the church, who traveled about, entering various houses, pursuing money, taking what they could, taking advantage of people in the name of ministry. Paul speaks about them in 2 Timothy 3.6. He says, There are those who creep into households, they capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. These essentially were false teachers, and the only thing they ever talked about was money. Paul says, They are burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. Spiritual leadership should never be after material gain. That's one of the things that Jesus is telling the apostles. Don't try to go to the best and nicest house. You are to be content in what the Lord provides. In fact, if you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I, I want to go a little bit deeper in on this point because, again, although the, the, the stipulations Jesus lays down in Mark chapter 6 are somewhat temporary, there, there are some basic principles that pop up later in the New Testament. And this is one of them. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, verse 3, Paul says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine that doesn't agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He's an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among God's people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says there are false teachers who all they do is have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And really they were legalistic people. They weren't preaching the true gospel. They were preaching that you had to do certain things to earn favor with God. And one of the chief things that they spoke about was money. You want to have favor with God, you better give money. Paul says they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That is that godliness, being in the ministry, is a means to make money on the side. Paul says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is what great gain is to be content with what you have. And notice what he says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, then with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, listen to this, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And verse 10, you know it well. Look at your Bibles. For the love of what? Money. Is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And if I could point to one thing that marks the weakness of the church and the world today, it is the health and wealth gospel. It is prosperity preachers. It is those who have a craving for money. It is those who say God won't bless you unless you give. God won't give you heaven unless you give. Those men are men who are examples of false teachers. They are depraved of mind. They are deprived of the truth. And they are leading many people astray by making the emphasis in the ministry money. That is a sign of a false teacher. And 
just to continue this, go with me to the book of Titus, just a couple of books over. When Paul speaks about a qualification for elders, he brings this subject up again. Titus chapter 1. Notice this. When I left you in Crete, I did so, Titus, that you would put in order by appointing elders in every town as I directed you. Now notice the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, husband or one wife, children or believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, an overseer is God's steward. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. Verse 7. Greedy for gain. That's monetary gain. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now that's what a true elder is. But notice the opposite of a true elder. What is a, a false teacher? Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Who is that? Judaizers, the legalists. People who taught you could buy your way into the kingdom. Verse 11, they must be silenced. What are they doing? They're upsetting whole families by teaching for, what does it say? Shameful gain. That's monetary gain. What they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true, apparently. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, legalism. The commandments of people who turn away from the truth. Paul says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Verse 16, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why? Because they manipulate through their legalism for money. That's a sign of a false teacher. And evangelicalism is rampant with that sort of mentality. Where is the dependence and the faith upon God? That is why Jesus tells the apostles, don't take a money bag. When you go to one house, stay there. That is what the Lord has provided for you. You know, Paul put it this way. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, every and every, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The early church dealt with false teachers in the Didache, which was an early church manual. The early church told the church, that those teaching false doctrines should not be received, that if a missionary or preacher stayed three or more days, he was a false prophet because that meant that he was just going to try to manipulate you for funds. If someone came speaking in the Spirit, not depending upon the Word of God, they spoke in the Spirit, saying, well, God told me to say such and such. God's revealed this to me. They were a false prophet. And also that a true prophet was worthy of the first fruits of both field and flock. So the laborer is worthy of his wages, but he is to be content in what God has provided. Beloved, we must be very, very careful 
not to communicate that money is the most important thing in the world. We shouldn't put a price tag on ministry. And yet we have a responsibility as leaders of the church to say that we are duty-bound to give to the work of the Lord. We are to give regularly, generously. We are to give joyfully. Because apart from money, the ministry of the proclamation of the Word of God can't continue. Jesus said, if you receive a prophet, if you receive a prophet in my name, if you welcome him, you will be blessed. I confess to you that I don't know the best balance. It's, it's always a difficult thing for me to talk about money from the pulpit. But I know this, the Lord always takes care of His servants. The means by which He does that is through the obedient, faithful, regular giving of the saints. And just on a personal note, when we started the church, you know, we, um, we purchased a little box and decided that we wouldn't pass an offering plate. We decided we were just going to trust the Lord, put the box in the back. The Lord has always, always provided and met our needs. The Lord blesses faithful ministry, but the Lord also calls His people to be faithful in the giving of their tithes and offerings. Well, we're going to stop here this morning. I wanted to get through all six points, and that's not going to happen unless you want to fast for lunch. So we're going to adjourn our meeting. But I want to encourage you. I don't know what your spiritual gifting is. I don't know what the Lord has called you to do, but I know this. You're here for a reason. He's called you into this church. And in this church, the Lord wants you to be a living sacrifice. He has sent you out into the world to be His voice, to be His hands, to be His feet. And we are to be faithful in whatever God has called us to do. We are not the original apostles. There are no original apostles today. But the apostles were the foundation of the church and we are built upon them. And so we are continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ as we proclaim the gospel, as we serve one another, and as we serve the interests of the kingdom of Christ. Let us bow for prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is always so powerful for us, sometimes to the point where we can't bear it because on our souls we feel such a weight. Uh, Lord, we have looked at some very basic principles. Lord, principles about serving, principles about giving. We thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for the saints who are here. Uh, We thank you for the obedience and the faithfulness. We thank you for providing for our needs and meeting our needs. Lord, we know that we can never outgive you. We know that we can never outserve you. Lord, help us to serve you more. Help us to understand that whatever task you have called us to, it is in the interests of your kingdom to support the ministry of the word, the proclamation of the gospel. Forgive us where we are unfaithful. Help us to be more faithful. Lord, not to try to earn some merit or favor with you. We know that we are accepted by you purely based upon the blood of Jesus Christ but we also want to be faithful in serving you. So help us to do that. Bless us, Lord, even as we carry over, Lord willing, next week and talking more about these principles. Help us not to lose sight of what you've ultimately called us to, and that is the proclamation of the gospel. And lastly, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, we've been speaking about being sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel, but 
there could be some in our midst that don't know Christ. Lord, we pray. We pray they would not leave here without speaking to me or to someone. Lord, that we might be able to show them from the Word of God the gospel with more clarity, to give to them the hope of salvation. So, Lord, thank you for our time. We ask you to bless us as we sing this hymn of response. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.